What's that you say? And I'll come back again tomorrow. Girl, that's the same old thing you told me. Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast. I'm Neil Orford, and over the next half hour, I will go over the critical care literature that caught our eye in March 2017. So let's jump straight into it, because as always, March has been a big month, with papers presented at the ISICEM in Brussels. And there's a big sepsis focus and levosimendin focus this month. And let's start with sepsis, because we've got the new sepsis guidelines, the PRISM investigators have published the patient-level meta-analysis, and we've got a couple of interesting, perhaps smaller papers. So let's start with the new sepsis guidelines, because these don't come out very often. The 2016 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines have been published in a number of journals. It's a 67-page document with 655 references. So how do we digest, interpret and translate such a document? The accompanying editorial in Critical Care Medicine gives sage advice and they provide an idea on how to use these guidelines. Firstly, there are the recommendations. These are the most useful for bedside translation. Secondly, there are the rationales that provide the logic behind each recommendation. And thirdly, there are the evidentiary tables, a compilation of all the research that has gone into these uh, recommendations. And they're perfect for the clinician who's well-versed in the evidence, who wants to dip in and out of bits of it. The guidelines also remind us that they, there is a story to sepsis, a continuum from diagnosis to resuscitation to initial source control and antimicrobials to organ-specific ICU care and end-of-life care. So there are about 60 to 65 recommendations and clearly we can't go through them all. There's a couple of broad issues worth discussing. Firstly, the definition of sepsis. And as you may recall, last year the definition of sepsis changed. And it changed during the development of these guidelines. So sepsis is now defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Septic shock is a subset of sepsis with circulatory and cellular metabolic dysfunction associated with a higher risk of mortality. Clearly this is not as easy to remember as the SERS and sepsis criteria, but that's what it is. And the recommendations are very thorough and you really are going to have to go and read them. They go through the initial resuscitation um, and they have best practice standards, which is the highest recommendation. They have strong recommendations and weak recommendations. In terms of initial resuscitation, they tell us to resuscitate immediately uh, to give at least 30 mils per kilo of IV crystalloid fluid within the first three hours and then to assess and monitor. They talk about screening for sepsis and performance improvement, diagnosis, that they recommend that appropriate routine microbiological cultures be obtained before 
starting antimicrobial therapy in patients with suspected sepsis or septic shock if doing so results in no substantial delay in the start of antimicrobials. There's a double message there. There are 15 guidelines on antimicrobial therapy. There's a couple on source control that basically encourage us to do it quickly. There are six on fluid therapy uh, where they talk about giving a fluid challenge, giving crystalloid as the fluid of choice for initial resuscitation and subsequent intravascular volume replacement, using either balanced crystalloids or saline for fluid resuscitation, using albumin in addition to crystalloids for initial resuscitation and subsequent intravascular volume replacement in patients with sepsis and septic shock when patients require a lot of fluid. They recommend against using starches for intravascular volume replacement and using crystalloids over gelatins. In terms of vasoactive medications, norepinephrine or noradrenaline has been moved up to the first choice vasopressor and then they suggest adding vasopressin 0.03 units per minute or epinephrine adrenaline to norad with the intent of raising MAP to target or adding vasopressin to decrease noradrenaline dosage. They suggest using dopamine as an alternate vasopressor agent to noradrenaline but only in highly selected patients. That is low risk of tachyarrhythmias, absolute relative bradycardia. This is a weak recommendation and I suspect is disputed. They recommend against using low dose dopamine for renal protection, which is a strong recommendation. They suggest using dobutamine in patients who show evidence of persistent hypoperfusion despite adequate fluid loading and the use of vasopressor agents. Again, a weak recommendation and I suspect will be disputed. They talk about corticosteroids and they suggest against using IV hydrocortisone to treat septic shock patients if adequate fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy are able to restore hemodynamic stability but if this is not achievable, they suggest using 200 milligrams a day of hydrocortisone. They talk about blood product use, uh, recommend that transfusions only occur when hemoglobin is less than 70 in the absence of extenuating circumstances against the use of EPO, against the use of FFP for clotting abnormalities in the absence of bleeding, and they have platelet criteria. They suggest against the use of IVIG, for sepsis or septic shock generally. Again, they make no recommendation about blood purification, um, recommend against antithrombin inhibitors, uh, and there is no recommendation regarding the use of thrombomodulin. It's a lot of definitions, a lot of uh, recommendations about mechanical ventilation, which are pretty sim reasonable, about protective ventilation strategies, high PEEP and low PEEP, um, recruitment maneuvers, proning, recommending against the use of oscillation, uh, no recommendations about NIV, the use of neuromuscular blockers for less than or equal to 48 hours in sepsis-induced ARDS and a PF of less than 150 is weakly recommended, uh, recommend a conservative fluid strategy, recommend against the use of beta-2 agonists, uh, against the use routinely of a PA catheter, 
etc. Sedation and analgesia, they recommend that continuous or intermittent sedation be minimized. Target specific titration endpoints. Uh, glucose control, a protocolized approach uh, aiming for greater than or started when starting insulin when blood glucose levels are greater than 180 milligrams per deciliter that it be measured every one to two hours until they're stable then every four hours etc renal replacement therapy they suggest either using continuous or intermittent that CRRT is used to facilitate management of fluid balance in unstable patients and against the use of renal replacement therapy in patients who don't have a kidney injury indication. They suggest against the use of bicarbonate therapy to improve hemodynamics or to reduce vasopressor requirements in patients with hypoperfusion-induced lactic acidemia with a pH greater than 7.15. They make venous thromboembolism recommendations, stress ulcer, prophylaxis recommendations. Uh, they recommend that SUP be given to patients with sepsis who have risk factors for GI bleeding and using either PPIs or H2 antagonists when stress ulcer prophylaxis is indicated. And they recommend against stress ulcer prophylaxis if there's no risk factors for GI bleeding. There are 11 nutrition recommendations they recommend against the administration of early parenteral nutrition alone or parenteral nutrition in combination with enteral feeding in critically ill patients with sepsis or septic shock who can be fed enterally. They recommend against the administration of PN alone or in combination with enteral feeds over the first seven days in patients with sepsis or septic shock for whom early EN is not feasible. They suggest that the early initiation of enteral feeding rather than a complete fast or only IV glucose in critically ill patients with sepsis or septic shock who can be fed enterally. They suggest that either early trophic or early full EN in patients with septic shock can be the initial strategy. They recommend against the use of omega-3 fatty acids as an immune supplement. They recommend against routinely measuring GRV. They suggest the use of prokinetic agents in critically ill patients uh, are encouraged, but it's a weak recommendation. They suggest placing a postpolaric feeding tube in critically ill patients with feeding intolerance against the use of IV selenium, against the use of glutamine, and they make no recommendation about the use of carnitine. And finally, they move into the area of goals of care. They recommend that goals of care and prognosis be discussed, and that's a best practice standard. They recommend that goals of care be incorporated into treatment and end-of-life care planning, utilising palliative care principles where appropriate. And they suggest that goals of care be addressed as early as feasible, but no later than within 72 hours of ICU admission. So that's a pretty brief, but will feel like a long summary of the surviving sepsis guidelines. 
you really need to go and look at them and then ideally units will discuss how they are going to interpret and implement them at a unit level. So what else happened in sepsis in March? Well there are three other articles I'll discuss. The first is the effects of dexmedetomidine on mortality and ventilator-free days in patients requiring mechanical ventilation with sepsis, published in JAMA by the Desire Investigators. So with Dahlia complete, SPICE ongoing, MEN's sub subgroup analysis suggesting benefit, the role of dexmedetomidine in critical illness sedation remains a hot and unresolved topic. This study aims to answer the question does a sedation strategy with dexmedetomidine compared with no dexmedetomidine improve ventilator-free days and mortality among patients with sepsis requiring ventilation? So 201 adults with sepsis requiring mechanical ventilation for at least 24 hours in eight ICUs in Japan were randomized to treatment with dex versus no dex as well as other sedatives. The results at baseline they were well matched. The primary outcome, dexmedetomidine, did not significantly improve either of the co-primary outcomes, ventilator free days, 20 days versus 18 days, or 28 day mortality, 23% versus 31% with a hazard ratio of 0.69. The secondary outcomes, SOFA scores at day 1, 2, 4, 6, 8, occurrence of delirium and coma, intensive care, duration of stay, renal function, inflammation, nutrition state, did not differ. The DEX group had a higher rate of well-controlled sedation during mechanical ventilation than the non-DEX group. So treatment with dexmedetomidine in patients with sepsis did not improve either VFDs or 28-day mortality. The 8% difference in mortality was not significant. The study was not power to detect that. But it will interest some clinicians. 8% seems like a lot at 28 days, if that effect was observed in a larger study. But really, before we ad adopt a widespread use of dexmedetomidine as the first-line sedative, surely we should wait for more evidence. We've got SPICE coming soon, and hopefully it will help answer this question overall, and perhaps specifically in sepsis. If we stay with JAMA, we've got the association between the US norepinephrine shortage and mortality among patients with septic shock. Now this is a really interesting one, because in February 2011, the US FDA announced a severe nationwide shortage of norepinephrine caused by production interruptions at three drug manufacturers that persisted until February 2012. The question is, was there an association between this shortage and mortality among adults with septic shock? This study reports on a large, nationally representative database of hospitalized patients in the US, and the association between the norepinephrine shortage, use of alternate vasopressors, and mortality among patients with septic shock. So adult patients with septic shock were defined as meeting criteria for severe sepsis using a previously validated algorithm that uses a combination of ICD-9 coding, a diagnosis of acute organ dysfunction, with the addition of use of any of five vasopressors, NORAD, 
or norepi, phenylephrine, dopamine, epinephrine, and vasopressin for two or more days during the hospital admission. Vasopressor use was defined as any daily pharmacy charge for a given vasopressor, and the cohort was restricted to patients who received vasopressor treatment for two or more days to exclude patients with infection and organ dysfunction who might have received just brief infusions. The study period was divided into quarter years, and there are really sort of three periods that they look at. The baseline period, eight quarters from July 8 to June 10, the primary hospital cohort during the shortage for the four quarters of the calendar year of 2011, and the post-shortage period from 2012 to June 13. To evaluate potential factors and outcomes associated with the norepinephrine shortage, the primary analysis cohort focused on a few things. So firstly, there was a relative decrease by more than 20% in norepinephrine use from baseline in at least one quarter. So that was a group they looked at, basically a group who didn't get norepinephrine or got less. A return to norepinephrine use rates to within 10% of the baseline by the second quarter of 2012. No more than one quarter of norepinephrine use that was more than 20% below baseline before or after 2011. So hospitals with norepinephrine use that did not decrease by more than 20% in any quarter of 2011 were designated as consistent use hospitals and used for comparison with shortage hospitals in a secondary difference in difference analysis. So what did they find? Well in over 27,000 patients with septic shock admitted to 26 hospitals, phenylephrine use significantly increased during the three-month periods of active norepinephrine shortage. And this was characterized in the 26 shortage hospitals that the baseline matching of septic shock patients during the shortage quarters versus the non-shortage quarters was similar although there was a difference in medical versus surgical category changed by 2%. Nor epinephrine decreased from 80% to 51%. Phenylephrine increased from 37 to 55%. Dopamine increased from 41 to 49%. Vasopressin increased from 26 to 32%. And epinephrine didn't change. The ICU and hospital length of stay did not change between the shortage quarters versus the non-shortage quarters. In-hospital mortality increased significantly from the shortage quarters from 36% to 40% in the non-shortage quarters. That's a p-value of 0.001. The comparison of consistent use hospitals revealed the relationship between norepinephrine use and mortality was robust to adjustment for secular trends, that is the decrease in mortality year on year. So, overall, the US norepinephrine shortage was significantly associated with increased mortality among patients with septic shock. Now, this could be interpreted as evidence of the efficacy and superiority of norepinephrine due to inherent drug features or our dexterity in using it. It could also be due to other factors that come into play when there is a shortage. We change our behaviour in an unmeasured manner that alters outcome when we know we have restricted access to a first-line medication. 
but it's still an interesting study and it provides a great springboard for discussion. So finally in sepsis we have the PRISM investigators patient level meta-analysis and this is the final big picture publication in the New England Journal about early goal-directed therapy. Now this journey has gone from the single center river study in 2001 that report reported the mortality benefit to the national multi-center studies process arise and promise that failed to show the same effect and this is the patient level meta-analysis of those three studies. So what is an individual patient level meta-analysis? It's a meta-analysis, so meta-analysis combines average results and does not account for patient heterogeneity, so treatment effects in patient subgroups or settings may be missed. The patient level meta-analysis addresses this and the investigators of these three trials prepared for this by harmonizing the entry criteria, intervention protocols, outcomes, major resource use measures and data collection. That's pretty cool. So what are the results? Well at baseline there are 1857 EGDT and 1818 usual care, median age of 65 across the three studies. About a third had lung infection, 20% UTI, and the entry serum lactate was 4.3. The time from ED to randomization was 160 minutes, with 93% receiving antibiotics at the time of randomization. 30 mils per kilo of IV fluid was given prior to randomization. I remember that was at two and a half hours. The primary outcome, 30-day mortality, was 25% versus 25%. The patient's survival over one year was no different. Length of stay in ICU, receipt of cardiovascular support were greater in the early goal-directed therapy. No other secondary outcomes differed. And subgroup analysis showed no benefit from early goal-directed therapy for patients with worse shock, that is a higher serum lactate, combined hypotension and hypolactemia, or higher predicted risk of death or for hospitals with a lower propensity to use vasopressors or fluids during usual resuscitation. So overall the patient level meta-analysis of these three big trials showed no benefit with early goal-directed therapy. In addition there was no benefit in sicker patients or an effect that depended on the resuscitation practices of the EDs involved. Finally, this study does not tell us the best way to resuscitate patients with severe sepsis in the ED with regards to fluids, vasopressors, targets. But it does describe clearly what usual care looks like across the three nations and it does hopefully reflect on an improvement in care that has resulted from so much study being done into sepsis over the 15 year period. So let's finish off with the levosimendin studies that have been published this month and there are two, levo-CTS and CHEDA. And if we add to the uh, LEOPARDS study that was published in October-November last year, we've got three RCTs reporting the outcomes of levosimendin in cardiac surgery and critical care setting. And in summary, they've all reported no benefit associated with its use compared to placebo. So although there is little evidence of harm, levosimendin is expensive and the use has increased for various indications. 
These include, and perhaps this is an, isn't an exhaustive list, acute on chronic heart failure, the prophylactic use in patients with impaired LV function undergoing cardiac surgery, acute rescue in patients requiring hemodynamic support around cardiac surgery, and as an adjunct to aid separation from ventilatory or mechanical support in more stable patients post-cardiac surgery or recovering from acute myocarditis cardiomyopathy. So what have we learnt this month? Well, firstly, let's look at the levo-CTS, levo-cementin in patients with left ventricular, ventricular dysfunction undergoing cardiac surgery. This multi-center RCT investigated the effect of prophylactic levosimendin in 882 patients with LVES less than 35% undergoing cardiac surgery, CAGs or valves. Other vasopressors or inotropes were administered at the discretion of the treating clinician. The groups were well matched at baseline with an entry EF of 26% and 90% of the levosimendin group received it for greater than 20 hours. That is, they got the treatment. So they report their outcomes. The first is a bit messy. It's a four-component composite of death through day 30, renal replacement therapy through day 30, perioperative myocardial infarct through day 5, or use of a mechanical cardiac assist device through day 5. And the outcomes were levo 24.5%, placebo 24.5%. The second composite primary outcome uh, was a two component of death through day 30 or use of a mechanical cardiac assist device through day 5. And that was levo 13.1%, placebo 11.4%. In terms of secondary outcomes, there was no difference in ICU length of stay. There was a significantly lower use of secondary inotropes in the levo-cemendin group, but not maybe not quite as much as you'd expect. It was 55% compared to only 63% in the placebo group, and there were no difference in the safety endpoints. So this study doesn't show harm, but it doesn't really suggest that levo-cemendin is of particular benefit in patients when it's given prophylactically for impaired LV function in cardiac surgery. Now they gave the levosimendin on induction before skin incision and many people will say that they should have given it much earlier but still this is a study we have. The second study was the levosimendin uh, for hemodynamic support after cardiac surgery and this is the cheetah study group and both of these were published in the New England Journal. So this study compares levosimendin in addition to standard inotropic treatment versus standard treatment alone among patients with perioperative cardiovascular dysfunction after cardiac surgery. Patients were included if they had perioperative cardiovascular dysfunction defined as the presence of at least one of the following criteria, a pre-op EF less than 25%, pre-op support with a balloon pump, need for a balloon pump, high dose inotropic support, or difficulty, difficulty weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass at any time within the first 24 hours after surgery. Eligible patients were randomised to placebo or levosimendin and it was increased or decreased at the discretion of the attending physician. The trial was stopped for futility after 506 patients were enrolled. 
Now most patients were randomised because of inotrope requirement in theatre or ICU with only 4% enrolled due to low EF preoperatively. The other 20% were um, balloon pump support. The groups were well matched at baseline. The Levos of Menden group received an average of 33 hours of treatment with a mean dose of 0.07 mics per kilo per minute. The primary outcome was 30-day mortality. It was 13% in Levo, 13% placebo, with no difference in cause of death, and Cup and Ma survival showed no difference in survival, and there was no difference in um, secondary outcomes. There were also no difference in pre-specified and exploratory subgroups or adverse events. So the CHEETAH study suggests that levosimendin as a sort of rescue therapy, pericardiac surgery, is no better than standard therapy. And if you remember, we had the LEPID study at the end of last year in the New England Journal, which again showed no real benefit of levosimendin in patients with severe sepsis. So these three studies together do raise questions about the efficacy of levosimendin. It's not harmful, but it is expensive. And the debate that will hopefully and should go on in all the ICUs and all around the world is whether or not we continue to use it for these indications or not, given its, its expense. It doesn't answer the question about its role in acute or on chronic heart failure. It probably doesn't answer the question about the separation from ventilation or mechanical support ECMO in patients who are difficult to wean but stable. And it's hard to imagine that there'll be another big study of levosimendin given three negative studies in six months. So we're going to have to make up our minds on our own. Well, that's it for Journal Club March 2017. There are more papers that were reviewed, so come to the website and have a look. Otherwise, We'll see you next month. Thank you. And I'll come back again tomorrow. Girl, that's the same old thing you told me yesterday.